Hey gang, back with another episode. And this episode is fascinating. I'm joined with Dr. Ben and Chloe, both of whom are practicing psychiatrists in the UK. Now, we talk about a world first study that they're both involved in. And this study is looking at the potential of MDMA as a tool to help people that are going through alcohol dependency, which is just fascinating. So we talk about this, we talk about other psychedelics. Uh, ben himself is, uh, from from my view, a bit of a, a pioneer, um, certainly a very strong figure within the uh, psychedelic research uh, scene. He's author of uh, many, many books, one of which I've read called The Psychedelic Renaissance. Um, couldn't recommend it enough. It's, it's a really great read and gives a, a very clear um, and interesting and insightful overview to all of the psychedelic drugs uh, that have been discriminated against for decades. And uh, it's certainly an educational read. Um, I, I recommend it. Before we get going on this podcast, I'd just like to shout out to Urbanistic. Uh, Urbanistic are an online retailer of of herbal vaporizers and CBD and hemp products. Uh, Just for complete transparency, uh, this is my business, but I don't do paid ads uh, on this podcast. I don't really like paid ads, um, but if you are in the market for a vaporizer or for some CBD um, and you choose to buy it from urbanistic.co.uk, then that helps me produce more content and go out um, speak with more people and it is deeply appreciated all right on with the show Ben with us today. Okay. Thank you very much for uh, for joining me. Thank um, you for having us. Green Crick in Bristol. So you've just told me what that stands for. It's gone right out of my head. Clinical Research and Imaging Centre. Right. Okay. And it, I, on the way in, I noticed you do some pretty cool stuff here, like sleep studies, um, MDMA studies. MDMA studies. Yes. Well, that's that's what we're kind of going to get into and mm-hmm. and talk about. And you actually do it in this very room that we're in. We right? do. We make it look a little bit nicer than this. We have nice soft lighting and kind of flowers around the place and music playing as well. Oh, fantastic. What sort of music? Uh, slow, mellow, ambient stuff. I see. Okay. Yeah. Very wise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you're both psychiatrists? Yeah. Right. Correct, right. yes. How long have you been psychiatrists for? So I have been psychiatrist for, ooh, not as long as Ben, three years. Three years? Yeah. I've been psychiatrist for uh, 20 years. 20 years. Mm-hmm. And out of that time... For how long have you been uh, administering MDMA um, within your within your profession? Uh, about a year, just under a year. Okay. So most people, I think, would uh, probably be quite 
surprised to hear that. Um, you know, my understanding of, of MDMA previously was the kind of um, euphoric, maybe party drug sort of thing. Um, so, so how does a drug like that come to be used uh, in, a, in a place like this? Um, well, this is the UK's first ever clinical MDMA study. So no one's ever administered MDMA to patients before this study that we're doing here. But MDMA science is quite old. I mean, it's as old as MDMA, older than ecstasy. Um, MDMA, you know, in answer to your question, MDMA started its life as a medical drug. So although most people do associate it with the recreational drug ecstasy, it's actually, it had a history long before that as a medical drug, starting in the mid-70s. Um, and then it became... Uh, a recreational drug in the mid-80s. So what we're doing in the study is we're just kind of trying to bring it back into medicine where, where it started. And was it designed specifically for something around this field or was it designed for something completely different? Well, when it was first synthesised in 1912, it wasn't designed as a psychoactive drug at all. In fact, its psychoactivity wasn't known. It was actually designed and patented as a precursor drug in a completely unrelated chemical synthesis by a German company called Merck in 1912. Um, its psychoactivity wasn't even known about or necessary. And then in the 50s it was very briefly explored by the CIA, um, but nothing happened, it didn't make any mark in the 60s. And then it really came to the fore at the end of the 60s when LSD had been banned. And some of the LSD psychotherapists um, who were no longer able to practice with LSD turned to MDMA and it was kind of being used for 10 years in the uh, psychotherapy community uh, until it followed a broadly similar path to LSD in that it kind of leaked from that community, became recreationally used and then was banned, like LSD. And of course on banning it, it didn't go away. It actually made the whole recreational thing explode and then we got the rave scene at the end of the 80s. So it's been around a long time. Um, I, I kind of almost look at the ecstasy part of MDMA as an irritating blip in the medicine's history and that it's going to have a long history in medicine long after its use as a recreational drug. Okay, and uh, that's fascinating background. Um, what are the types of things that you're exploring in this study? Um, what, are, what are you looking to achieve or where, where do you think the areas are that you think this is going to have a, a therapeutic value to your patients? Mm. Well, it's a study for patients with alcohol use disorder. So it's um, the very first part of a whole um, series of experiments to see at this stage if it can be safely delivered to patients with alcohol use disorder um, and ultimately to help them to reduce their drinking. Uh, alcohol use disorder is very difficult to treat with relapse rates at about 90% within three years. So if it can be any better than that, then it, we're on to a good thing if it can help people to stop their drinking. So how is it treated at the moment? Uh, alcohol use disorder. Yeah. Lots of things, isn't it? So yeah, not, not very well, actually. Not very well, uh, not poorly. Very well at, um, at the moment, people have alcohol dependency, so that means that they have to keep drinking, otherwise they may suffer seizures or withdrawal symptoms. Um, we do medical detoxes with a benzodiazepine, so uh, people might be familiar with the drug Valium. Um, and we just use that drug to replace the alcohol and then we decrease the dose each day. But it has a really high relapse rate. Um, it's difficult to treat. Mm. And so there's a whole load of other like psychosocial inputs like groups, meetings, counselling, therapy, support groups like AA. There's a 
there's a bunch of anti-craving drugs as well which have a sort of minimal success and it does work for some people but I think because alcoholism is so complex from a sort of psychosocial point of view and so ingrained in our culture it's very difficult but the reason we, we're deciding to do this is with MDMA is because we know that MDMA in recent years has been studied as a tool for treating trauma in PTSD and we know that alcoholism involves a large amount of psychological trauma so we kind of put two and two together and said let's see if MDMA will work for alcoholism. Wow, amazing. Okay, so what would happen in um, one of these one of these sessions? In the MDMA session? Yes. Well, I think main, the first thing to say is the, most of the course is not drug assisted and that's typical pattern for all psychedelic therapies. So it's an eight week course of weekly sessions most of which are just face-to-face -face sessions in this room without any medicine. They take MDMA on two occasions, on weeks three and six, interspersed with the non-drug sessions. Um, and on the drug session, do you want to talk about the drug session? You've, you've been around when we've, when we've done drug that? Drug sessions? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so the drug sessions, patients arrive um, early in the morning, they go through checks to make sure they're okay, things like blood pressure, um, drug urine screen to make sure they're not on anything already. Uh, they get administered the drug and then they sit in this room with lovely therapists, Ben and his ther co-therapist Laurie, that sort of guide them through the journey, um, which goes on for quite a few hours, doesn't it? It like does. It's, it goes on all day. And they usually, they usually take the medicine around about 10am and then they're back to baseline by about 5 or 6 in the evening. Mm. And the crucial thing about the drug sessions is it's very non-directive, it's very client-centred. So we're not pushing them with a particular agenda to explore particular things or go to certain places. We let, we let the medicine take them where, wherever it wants to go. Um, there's a certain amount of guidance in that, because we've had these two or three weeks of preparation sessions, the patient comes to the drug session with a kind of a, a loose agenda of the sort of things they might want to explore. And, but we let them take it at their own pace. Um, they, they lie on the bed with they have eye shades and headphones and we kind of encourage them to spend time, we, we call it like spend time inside in that kind of uh, internal state and then we'd encourage them if they feel like it to come out and talk about what they've been thinking about. So they kind of go in and out like that throughout the course of the day. Okay, and then what would, what would happen after that? Like how, how long is this total programme going on for? The to well, the, the the therapeutic course is eight weeks, so right. it's eight eight weeks of sessions, um, and then we follow them up for three, six, and nine months. So once you put into it screening and the baseline sessions while we're recruiting, a patient's entire journey through the study is probably about ten or eleven months. Wow. Okay. And within those number of weeks um, in the actual treatments, how often are they coming visiting you and, and weekly taking the once a week? Once a week. No, they take the MDMA twice. They they come here once a week for outpatient sessions, and on two of those weekly sessions, it's the MDMA session. Okay, and um, at what point do you think that you're looking to um, be able to get the results from this study? Well, uh, the point when everyone is finished and through will be mid-next year, um, because we're, we're going to continue recruiting and treating all the way up to August this year. We've run out of money in August, so we're going to have to stop the clinical part of the study in August, but we'll carry on recruiting all the way up to there which means we'll be following people up for you know almost nine months beyond that so it'll be middle of next year that it's all finished then we get it all get we analyze the data and write it up maybe get 
the paper out uh, by the end of 2020. Okay, in all being well, this like shows some sort of positive um, results. What would be next after that? What would you look to do next? Well, it's difficult. The ideal, the, the thing we should do is a randomised control study of this study. So this is an open label study. What that means is there isn't a control group. Everyone gets MDMA. They all know it and we know they get MDMA. So the, we're not really testing efficacy because you can't separate the MDMA from the therapist. But that's a normal thing to do in a first ever study in a particular new disorder that's not been studied before. So the next logical thing to do is to have a, do this study again, but with a control group. Um, but things haven't quite worked out that way. Um, it's all about money. Yeah. Mm. So we've got a different study plan, don't we? Yeah, but yeah, it's about getting the funding. So I think we're in the process of applying for money, but whether they'll say yes is another matter. Okay, well, good luck. I hope you get, hope you get the funding. If you've got any money, Francis, I, I you know. I wish I did. Oh, yeah, that, that's certainly something I would if I, yeah. if I was small, sitting <laughs> on a big gold pot. But alas, yeah, I've left that, that life behind and yeah. uh, gone in a slightly different pursuit. <laughs> um, it's, it's expensive pharmacology research, mm. and yeah. it's by far the biggest impediment is the money. Right. Can you give an indication of kind of how much we're talking here to, to, to fund um, uh, a study? Seven to nine hundred thousand pounds. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Depends on. I mean, yeah. it depends on. Definitely don't have that. No. Maybe Zimbabwean dollars. Yeah. I could maybe do, but um, no British pounds. Unfortunately. It depends not. what else. It depends how much. What you want to do. You know, if you want to add imaging, you're going to add another bunch of money. If you. Yeah. So um, money aside for one second, how on earth do you even get approval to be sitting in here administering? Uh, you know, a highly controlled substance. Yeah, that's that's not, yeah, the money's more the difficult part. Money's always the barrier. Mm. You know, all of the psychedelic research of the last 15 years that we've been doing at Imperial, um, ethics approval, MHRA approval, it's not been a problem. You know, as long as it's a well-designed study that's taking part in a, in a, you know, mainstream academic institution and all the safety parameters are there, they're not going to not approve it. You know, it's far more dodgy studies going on than, than psychedelic studies. You know, there's no animals involved. Or, you know, those sorts of studies are ethically much more tricky than this kind of thing. So it's not the approvals that's hard, it's the money. Once you've got the cash, um, the government are quite happy to grant approval for this kind of research. I was surprised. I mean, there's, there's people within the government that, that would lead us to believe that, you know, these drugs could be highly dangerous. Um, so that's, yeah, I mean, it's good that it's not an obstacle, but mm. I'm somewhat somewhat surprised. Yeah, I suppose, I suppose it's important to remember that, that MDMA is not the same as a street drug. I mean, it, it's a very separate thing. Yeah. So It's very different from ecstasy, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I think you, I think when you say things like that, you know, there's people in the drug, in, in the government, there's often quite a lot of myths around government interference in psychedelic projects. I've just been reading a book, actually, about how the whole narrative around how the US government suppressed LSD research and that's why because of the Vietnam War and hippies it's just not the case at all. The US government were wholly supportive of LSD research right up to the early 80s um, and similarly the governments here uh, it's not it's not some government conspiracy that's getting in the way of psychedelic research it's funding. Yeah. It's you know most 99% of pharmacology research is funded by the pharma industry who think nothing of throwing millions at this drug or millions at that drug, because if they come up with the next Viagra or Prozac, they'll make billions. 
Whereas, who's going to throw that money at psychedelic research? All the psychedelic chemicals are non-patented. Nobody owns MDMA or cannabis or LSD or psilocybin. Um, so, there's just no product to make in terms of reaping back your R&D costs. Yeah. So the pharmacy don't throw any money at it. So if you look at all the psychedelic research, like ours here, and all the stuff done at MAPS, it's all funded by philanthropists, charitable donations, and that makes it incredibly slow. Oh, okay, well if there's anyone listening that happens to have you know, <laughs> yeah. a couple of million sitting there gathering dust, then this could yeah, be a really good application for Well, yeah, and that, that is sometimes how it works, isn't it? That's, you know, yeah. a lot, if you look at all the, the work done by MAPS, you're familiar with Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. I've read about them. Yeah, so that's a US organisation that's kind of spearheading the MDMA research around the world. Because they're California-based, massive amounts of their money has come from these... Um, Silicon Valley tech CEOs who had sort of, you know, psychedelic experiences in the 60s and 70s and now have all this money and they're throwing it at that. So a lot of the other big source of funding for MDMA research has come from military, military charities because the whole concept of kind of combat, combat PTSD is kind of pretty topical at the moment. Okay. Um, and so Chloe, what, to what extent are you involved in Ben's work here or is your psychiatry work kind of like a, a whole different world or so so I am I do work very separately I'm a psychiatrist in a community um, it's community team so I do community assessments uh, and I guess treatment um, I got involved with Ben because I provide some of the medical aspects so I do things like blood tests ECGs uh, and I provide care for patients after they've taken the MDMA so after their therapy session um, I stay with them overnight just to make sure they're okay. So that's my role. Okay, hmm. mm -hmm. interesting. And um, how does this get perceived by your, your peers that perhaps aren't administering MDMA to their patients? Oh, I, I haven't had any negative, uh, yeah, no negative views on it at all. I think, um, I mean, the results so far from other studies in other countries, um, mainly the US, the results have been very positive. Um, so it's able to treat PTSD and people remain symptom free. So I think from a psychiatrist's point of view, if it's going to reduce the number of people on long-term antidepressants, then it's fantastic. Yeah. So it's it. always, I always get a very positive press. Yeah. Um, anyone that knows anything about the subject and looks at the data can see how safe and efficacious psychedelics are. It's only people who don't know anything about the subject or don't look at the data that have fallen for the... Uh, misinformation and lies that two generations of the misuse of drug, drugs actors inflicted upon people by uh, irrational governments. So once you look at the data, it's clear. And you know, doctors are pretty open-minded, liberal people on the whole. Their main focus is: is this going to help my patients? And if it is, then I'm all for it. So it's very un unusual to get an irrational response from a medical colleague. Uh, they, the first thing they would say is, "Tell me how it works." What are your outcomes? Are there any adverse effects? And if, if, all, if they're happy with all those things, who cares whether it, it has a history as a irrationally banned substance? Awesome, that's great to hear. Um, this study is uh, very narrow in scope, as I'm sure it probably needs to be to you know, go and get the, the necessary approvals mm. for, for such a study. Um, in your opinion, you know, how um, what could the scope of this be in terms of, uh, let's say, things like therapy, um, potentially treating kind of mental health, depression, things like mm. that? Do you think there's scope for this to, to 
be useful in these areas? Well, well, yeah. Um, you know, alcoholism disorder is a mental health disorder. Um, addictions are very hard to treat, so I can see MDMA therapy being applied across a wide range of addictions, particularly opiate addiction. Um, anything that involves a sense of early trauma, and that's probably pretty much most things in mental illness. You know, pretty, pretty much all psychiatric patients have had some kind of awful history. Not all have had big stuff like physical or child abuse, but many, when you say what was your childhood like, they just say, you know, a bit of crap. And so I think the underlying trauma is there in most, certainly most anxiety-based disorders and affective disorders and addictions, obviously. So at the moment, most of the work with MDMA has been applied to post-traumatic stress disorder. This is the first one for alcoholism. There's been one study done on um, anxiety disorder in adults with autism. We've been talking to people about potential uh, MDMA therapy for opiate dependence, anorexia nervosa, obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, depression, possibly, maybe even bipolar one day. So a, a wide range. I mean, it's. Yeah. I, I often, I almost sometimes think we're going to look back in twenty years' time and say, "Do you remember when we used to do psychotherapy without MDMA?" I think one of the big problems that maybe you agree that, that I notice is with engagement often people, um, I mean therapy is painful, talking therapy it's really hard to, to sit in a room with a therapist and talk about your traumas and things that have happened in your past. So often we, we get a lot of disengagement, but patients just find it too difficult. So I think that's where MDMA really comes into its own. It makes it easier, mm -hmm. if you'd agree with that. Yeah, I mean it makes it possible. Yeah. You know, I think one of the problems with trauma, particularly post-traumatic stress disorder, is the the development of avoidance is a neuroprotective mechanism. So you don't talk about or think about or go back to that memory because it would be so overwhelming. Yet the main therapeutic aspect of counselling is let's talk about your pain. Mm. And so you're asking the patient to do the one thing they've become expert at, at, at not doing. You know, by the time they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and they've got addicted to alcohol because of something that happened to them when they were five years old, they've had 45 years to not talk about that thing. And then they sit down with the therapist who says, tell me about your pain. And they're like, out the door. So what MDMA does is it, it simply allows a patient to do the psychotherapy that they need to do and always have needed to do. So in that respect, it could be applied across a lot of different mental disorders. Mm. It's fascinating to hear the kind of spectrum of things that you're, mm. you're mentioning there. Mm. Um, and it's a difficult one to see how this is going to be uh, funded or, or kind of just introduced into the, the mainstream. Um, if you've got pharmaceutical companies potentially um, having their product base or their services uh, at risk, do you think that they see that as a threat or just something that they're not Good willing question. to touch? <laughs> it's, it's a, are, we sort of, are you asking whether you think it will be blocked because pharma, cause it will threaten pharmaceutical company profits? Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking from the point of, you know, running my own business, yeah. if I sell uh, an item and then there is uh, someone else that comes up and starts selling an item that's way more effective yeah. or it's like one thing that can fix 
you know, 10 to 15 of the products yeah. that I sell, I'd be like, oh, uh, yeah. that, that's going to, you know, I that's going to harm my bottom line. And uh, yeah. as a business in a capitalist world, that's mm -hmm. kind of the, you know, the bottom line, right? I think that's a really good question, Francis. I think there are a lot of conspiracy theories about um, things like antidepressants and whether whether they really work. Uh, are they there for pharmaceutical companies to make money from? Um, and I think as psychiatrists, we'd say they do work, but... A lot of the research is funded by pharmaceutical companies, so I guess the, the evidence we see is given to us by the pharmaceutical companies, so make of that what you will. Um. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, so far the pharmaceutical industry hasn't shown any very much interest in, in psychedelic therapies, um, in terms of certainly funding research, but nor have they shown any interest in being concerned about it. Um, I think that farm, uh, everyday maintenance pharmacy like SSRIs and mood stabilizers and these sorts of things are very ingrained and it's going to take a very long time before there's a kind of significant dent in their bottom line as a result of psychedelic therapies. Um, but it might come one day and then they might wonder what's going on but they don't seem to be too concerned at the moment they just maybe will believe it when they see it. The reason I like psychedelic therapies is because I don't really like psychiatric prescribing. And MDMA psychotherapy is the antithesis of maintenance um, psych, uh, psychopharmacology. You know, it's... And people often kind of focus on the drugs part of psychedelic therapies and say, oh, you know, here's those psychiatrists with more drugs. But actually, the people who are interested in psychedelic therapies are essentially psychotherapists at heart, not psychopharmacologists. I like them because they get you off the other drugs. You know, two or three sessions with MDMA or psilocybin and you're better and you don't need to take an SSRI every single day for weeks, months, years, decades. Um, so they are the opposite of psychiatric prescribing. It's clever, focused, targeted psychopharmacology combined with psychotherapy in order to be cured. And, you know, we don't use the cure word in psychiatry. It, we've kind of given up that but we should be, um, and you know, other parts, other parts of medicine would not stand for the poor outcomes that we do in psychiatry. We can do better than this. And do you think magic mushrooms could be useful uh, aid in kind of therapy? Do you think yes, they could, of course, yeah. 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 Very, they're very well studied. Yeah, there's yeah, large, psilocybin. large study going on in London at the moment. So, okay, yeah, they're they're just kind of just second to MDMA in terms of likely to get licensed in the next few years. Oh wow! It seems like there's quite a lot of stuff going on um, in London at the moment. Um, the UCL for one uh, is that where a lot of this stuff. Most of it's Imperial's definitely the centre. So this study is an Imperial study. It's just we're doing it here in Bristol because we live here in Bristol. But this is sponsored by Imperial. Right. Our MDMA study, and um, you know, in the last ten years, because I've been work, I've been there under David Nutt's team since 2007, 12, yeah, 12 years now. We've done studies with LSD and DMT and ketamine and MDMA and uh, psilocybin. Yeah. So uh, that's where the centre is. And there's stuff, at, there's stuff at UCL as well. Um, I'm about to start a cannabis study at UCL. A cannabis study? Mm. Oh, wow. Doing what? Uh, in teenagers and young adults vaporizing different uh, different quantities and proportions of THC and CBD to 
I'm not quite sure what they're looking at. It's an imaging study, but it's healthy. They're healthy oh, controls, right. yes. Yeah, so it's not a clinical yeah. study. Oh wow! And but, but so, what are you looking to like? What are you measuring? We're not. In, I'm. I'm not part of that. Right. My colleague at UCL is doing. But, but what are they? Kind of, I'm not sure. Oh right. They're okay. recruiting now, though. Oh wow! I'll sign up for that. Yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Yeah, do it. It's. Yeah. It's. Uh, I think you have to eat. How old are you, Francis? It's, it's 15 to 78. Oh yeah, yeah right. hey, you you would be eligible. It's yeah. fifteen to yeah. seventeen and twenty two to yeah. twenty nine. We'll hook you up. They're allowing people fifteen to seventeen. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Amazing. Mm -hmm. So how do if, if children you, need medication too? No, yeah, that's true actually. And then, well, we've seen obviously Billy Caldwell um, recently, mm -hmm. you know, needing uh, access to a THC and CBD preparation for his epilepsy, yeah. and that's what's that's what's caused the whole um, you know, legalization effort to. Mm -hmm. To kick off in the in the UK, um, yeah. people that are interested in being, I, I think you're being incredibly optimistic there. Do you, yeah. The legalisation effort to kick off in the UK, I'd like, yeah. I'd like to think so. Well, I, I mean, ACMD have seen three people, and even then, they're not getting what they want. So there's they? no access. I actually spoke to a gentleman uh, a couple of episodes ago, who's um, the first to to get access to it. But um, you know, it was uh, it involved um, a, a private. Uh, a private GP who'd been seeing him for a large number of years, um, so he'd already tried kind of every medicine under the sun um, to no effect. So what cannabis were they letting him have, actually have? Well, that was the problem. So they, they signed it off. Um, so then he went to his pharmacy to collect his medication. But of course, there's there's no one licensed. There's no licensed products at the moment. No. Um, so he had to uh, make a trip over to uh, the Netherlands. Was he allowed to bring it back? Well, this is this is the whole thing. We we don't really know. He this this chap had studied the law. He believed quite well and believed that he would have been able to um, bring it back with him. Yeah. Um, he was need a home office import license. So he believed that he the the amount he was taking. I think it was under a certain amount. Um, and there was some kind of stipulation where if he was leaving the country again within two or three months, it was under some sort of quota. Um, I'd have to like dig back into the details of, of what he was saying, um, but unfortunately they didn't get a chance to to test his his hypothesis because of course when he walked through Heathrow um, Customs there was there was no one there to uh, oh. to declare anything to so somewhat so he underwhelmingly just, just yeah he just strolled through. on through yeah but I mean um, I guess it's a he is breaking the law and liable to prosecution unless he's got. He's got prescriptions, but there isn't a product. This is why the whole thing is we're actually nowhere further forward at all. Because what's the good of a piece of paper that says prescribed cannabis if actually there is no cannabis product in this country legally mm. that you can collect from your pharmacist and you can't bring it in either? So, you know, it was all a bit of a spin, I think, Theresa May caving into the Sun newspaper and uh, with, with Billy Caldwell and saying. Yeah, we'll, we'll allow it in special cases. As far as I know, talking to David Nutt about this last week, the ACMD still... Nobody's actually meaningfully moved forward towards cannabis medicine at all. But I would like to think so. I mean, institutions are starting to shift. The BMA came out about six months ago firmly on the side of review of cannabis laws. Um, the uh, Royal College of Psychiatrists are in the debate tomorrow a debate, isn't there? Mm. Um, and hopefully they'll come off the fence. 
And there's the World Health Organization as well, haven't they? They released a... There's a plenty of people outside of this country that yeah. have done lots, yeah. I mean, this is the sad thing. Um, I was at the uh, United Nations in 2016 for the Global Drug Strategy Conference, and, you know, there were so many other nations that are doing much more with innovative, creative things around drug policy than we are in this country. We're, we're definitely stuck in the kind of archaic side of things. And it's embarrassing, because from a pharmacology point of view, the UK is like a world leader in psychopharmacology research. Yeah, our own cannabis policy is just so outdated. Somewhat interestingly, uh, according to a United Nations narcotics report, I think it was it 2017 they had the data for, we were actually the largest medical export yeah, yeah. of cannabis in the world. Yeah, yeah. Huh. yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's kind of wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, wow. yeah, those are. Yeah, of course, I sound like a broken record saying it, but you've, you've got you know uh, some key members within the Conservative government that that have significant business interests in in cannabis. So um, you know, it's it's quite an interesting one. Um, yeah, there's always more going on beneath the surface. Yeah. So it, it sounds fascinating that I think there's there's way more going on in terms of psychedelics in the UK that, that people probably aren't aware about. Um, what's the best way for people to um, be able to participate in, in these studies? Is there kind of like one place they can go and view them all? Um, you know, what's the best way for people to get involved? Um, I, I think if you're interested in just getting involved in what's going on in the UK in terms of the psychedelic research or cultural scene, best thing you can do is to go to one of the conferences or to subscribe to one of the journals. So there's a journal called Psychedelic Press um, and they put out a quarterly journal and that's, they always have lots of great articles in there. Um, I set up and uh, co-founded a group called Breaking Convention in 2010 and we, we've had 2011, 2013, 15, 17, this is the fourth one. in, I think it's the weekend of the 15th of August, Greenwich University, big, big conference this year, um, psychedelic research is from all over the world. So that's a really good place to start because you can network there really easily. And then things like the Psychedelic Society, which kind of came into existence about five years ago, I think, and there's most, most cities now, um, Big cities have a psychedelic society all over the world, and that's really grown up in the last five years, big time. So, um, and they have regular talks and invite speakers and that kind of thing. So we're going to the psychedelic society tomorrow in Newcastle. Yeah, we are indeed. And then next week we're at the Sussex. Brighton one, yeah. There's one and Newcastle. Yeah, oh, Newcastle, and Brighton, Newcastle, uh, Liverpool, yeah. Manchester, Birmingham. They've all got them. Yeah. Uh, Glasgow. Yeah, just give, give it a Google. Dublin. I'm sure they will have Facebook. Uh, yeah. I've been into the one in London. Oh, have you been yeah. into the yeah. Yeah. headquarters? Yes, yeah. there's a Bristol yeah. one, you know, like most major cities, but also internationally. So I've spoken at the one in Finland, and we're going to Norway, and um, uh, Germany. And That's amazing. There. There, there really seems like there's kind of a worldwide... There is. Yeah. I mean, what's kind of interesting is people talk about the psychedelic 60s, like that was this kind of time of psychedelia. The psychedelic 60s are absolutely nothing compared to what's going on today. Far, far more people are using psychedelics culturally uh, than ever did in the 60s. Tiny fraction of people actually took LSD in the 60s. It, it had an enormous cultural impact, those tiny number of people. But the actual number of people using LSD in the 60s was minuscule. 
I was reading somewhere at the height of the swinging London scene in 66, 67, you know, Sergeant Pepper and the Beatles, there were only 1,500 people using LSD in London. That's tiny. You know, there's 1,500 people in an average Bristol nightclub on LSD these days. <laughs> so it's, 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 we've way eclipsed the 60s. This is the time of psychedelic research and psychedelic culture. Um, now, not back then. That's brilliant. Well, that's, that's really encouraging. Um, that's great. Uh, I have to say, if you, you said the Braden Conventions in Greenwich, which is near where I live currently, mm-hmm. on the 15th of August. I, I really hope you got that date mixed up, because um, I am flying to Canada on the 13th of August. What day is that? It's a one-way Cancel, Cancel your flight, mate. It's, it's a one-way. Yeah, I yeah, think it's like, 14th to uh, the 17th <laughs> or something. It's that weekend, oh, yeah. Gosh, yeah, I might actually have to try and rearrange that, because uh, I need to get myself there. That's you should do, because it's like... Uh, it's a really good conference because it's yes. so multidisciplinary, you know, it's, it's got all the kind of boring doctor people like, like Chloe and it's got all the really exciting people <laughs> <laughs> like, 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 like Chloe and I and, and then it's got all the art and music and culture and all the crazy hippies and, and it's nice like that, that you can, yeah, you know, you can go to one room and there'll be some guy talking about receptor profiles in a very, in all graphs and tables and then you go next door and there's some crazy person talking about the female spirits that live in the salvia leaves, you know, yeah. and they all have a platform. That's incredible. Yeah. That's that's great, and it really is speaking to the name, I guess, of breaking conventions, yeah, yeah, exactly, breaking yeah. stereotypes of of what people perhaps yeah. associate with. Not just with one narrative. It's yeah. you know loads of different mm. narratives, loads of different ways of thinking about things. And do you think that's frustrating as a scientist for you to get your head around that? That which part? I don't know. Chakras and. I'm okay Energy with it personally. <laughs> I think maybe me and Ben have different views on this, but I, you know, I think well, whatever helps people. If people want to believe in chakras and spirits, that that's and it helps them, that's fine. Is there a place for this kind of stuff? Like ayahuasca, for example, exactly. seems to have an incredibly rich uh, history and yeah. a huge potential in in helping people in a plethora of ways, but. It's so far apart from Western well, yeah. medicine, so how, is there a way that I can integrate? I th- well, yeah, I think it's very arrogant of us to assume that Western medicine is the only and correct way yeah. of treating people. Um, you know, people have been living in other ways, other cultures, for hundreds and hundreds of years without the sort of mental illnesses we're seeing today in Western civilization. Uh, so I, th- I, think it, I think it can happen. I think there's a place for them both. Yeah, um, if it works. Yeah, if it works, and uh, I think... This is a place to start by doing things like psilocybin trials, MDMA trials, and trying to bring them into the scientific framework. What's um, very hard is to translate those anecdotal experiences into the kind of data you require to get approvals and licenses. So anecdotal data means nothing to the people granting licenses. It doesn't matter how many millions of people will tell you MDMA's great, or LSD's great, or even LSD cured my alcoholism, or MDMA cured my depression, it doesn't mean anything. You've got to do the rigorous placebo-controlled studies. You have to demonstrate it in that way. And that's really hard because a lot of the aspects of psychedelics that are active components of the effect, set and setting, are hard to measure. The way that the randomised controlled study is designed is, you know, this antibiotic should work whatever room you give it in, you know, uh, because that's how they work. Whereas psychedelics are not like that. You've got to give it in a certain room, in a certain way, by certain people, in a certain mood. And it's really hard to translate that into science. But in order to get the approvals, that's the only way to do it. 
you can't really circumnavigate it. And as a result of that, some of the psychedelic research of the last 15 years, especially stuff coming out of Imperial, has been so beautifully designed. You know, such good psychopharmacology studies. Um, because they know that the spotlight is on them and there's a lot of cynics. So you have to really be meticulous in your design in terms of safety and efficacy. Um, but it's worth it and we're getting the data in. And MDMA will be licensed in 2021 and then we'll open a clinic. Amazing. Mm. Well, I can't wait for that. That mm. sounds great. And psilocybin a couple of years behind that. Well, that seems incredibly positive then. Like, that's yeah. very, very encouraging. Uh, and a positive note to end on, I think, because I, I think I could keep you prisoner here for hours and hours <laughs> and pick your brains on a variety of, of topics, but I'm conscious it's, uh, it's been a long day and that's been a, a, an enlightening uh, conversation. So, Ben, Chloe, thank you so much for your thank time. You for oh, yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, good luck.